This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Welcome back to the COVID report. Returning to the show, the national spokesperson of NOMSA, Pagamile Shubi Majola, joining us here on the COVID report. Pagamile, welcome back to the show. Thank you again for joining us. We are at the stage in advanced lockdown level three, having um, some sectors resuming their business operations. And while there has been some um, economic activity, one of the challenges we are facing are job losses. The CCMA has also reported a spike in the number of cases they've received in this period. As far as the rate at which job losses have spiked over the course of the advancing stages of this lockdown, what are are your members saying in response to the situation? Good afternoon and good afternoon to your listeners and thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm so glad you started at that point with the CCMA in, um, report because what the CCMA is, is, is telling the public is precisely the, the, the situation we are facing as NUMSA. We are under enormous pressure. I mean, it is it is like being, you know, we're putting out fires everywhere. We have never received the number of Section 189 notices like we have received in the last couple of weeks. The rate at which they're coming through is just unbelievable. When I have conversations with regional secretaries, they are, they're saying that some of them, like there was one I was talking to in particular in Sidibeng, who was saying that in his entire life of working at NUMSA, he has never seen this number of retrenchment notices that they are having to deal with within such a short period of time. And all of it is tied directly to the COVID-19 lockdown and the impact that it has had on many industries. Even when you look at, for example, the recent statistics which were released by StatsSA last week, talking about how in the first quarter of the year, um, unemployment has gone up. They're talking about 30%. Some reports are even saying that, pardon me, we can expect uh, unemployment to go up as far as 50% because of the impact of of the pandemic. The term job loss bloodbath is not an understatement. Job loss bloodbath. If three words have never made, if, if there were any other three words that have made my skin crawl more so than those three words in the way you've just arranged them, those certainly qualify. And I think this perfectly segues into my next question. In your view, what is the impact of these job losses in a country that is already ravaged by an unemployment crisis? It's very, very difficult what is happening to workers and their families in South Africa today. Um, I think... First of all, we must appreciate that coronavirus is something that is happening to all of us. So it's not even a problem of workers. It's a problem of our society as a whole. And as South Africa, we are not, we are not alone in this crisis. Everywhere globally, there is a real problem where many companies are either shutting down or they are downscaling radically. Um, because of the the coronavirus and what it's done to industries. If I can give you an example, aviation, which is where NUMSA is organized, you will know, for example, that the aviation sector globally 
has experienced severe strain because of coronavirus. There are travel bans that are currently in place in many countries along across the world. And what many companies are doing, instead of flying, they're having Zoom meetings because to have a Zoom meeting is much safer. It means that you reduce your chances of, of, of spreading or, or contacting the, or contracting the virus. So it tells you how the world has changed as a result of the impact of the virus. Now, what does that mean? What it means for countries is that this is the, the way to deal with the crisis of this magnitude is that you can't just sort of throw your hands in the air and say, oh, well, we're experiencing job losses. Uh, there's nothing we can do. When you read the tone and the statement of President Ramaphosa when he issued his, um, his letter last week, Monday, frankly, that is precisely what he was saying. He was basically saying, South Africa, prepare yourselves. There is a massacre as far as jobs are concerned. Um, sorry, nothing we can do. I mean, that's completely unacceptable as a response from a, a caring, so-called caring government. You have to, as a government, a government intervene in such a situation because these are not normal circumstances. Workers are not losing jobs because of something that they did. It's, it's happening to them. Coronavirus, as I said, is happening to all of us. And if we're saying we are all in this together, then we must reflect that in the policies that we choose to take in order to cushion the poor and the working class against the severe effects of job losses and, and the severe effects of an economy that is not going to perform well because of the, of the impact of the virus. Indeed, this isn't a matter that can just simply be met with pessimism and a defeatist attitude. I do think that uh, defeatism is a problem that that we've seen poke out in bits and pieces among the greater leadership force over the course of our dealing with this pandemic. Now, we've talked about the the people who've been impacted by this time and the the dramatic spike in job losses for the workers who have been able to either return to work or continue working in these conditions what have your shop stewards been saying with regards to ensuring that adequate protection of employees is always adhered to and how is numsa monitoring the compliance of these regulations it's a big challenge um because what you have is Many companies um, are not really complying. So you have the World Health Organization has given directives about the kinds of standards that have to be implemented in the workplace for a workplace to be deemed safe. The WHO has also defined protocols about what steps must be taken if infections occur in the workplace. Um, and it's been very clear about what, what has to happen. And the Department of Labor has articulated that too in terms of what is demanded. Some examples of that are, for, for example, that um, all employees must be trained in coronavirus protocols. What that basically means is because we are no longer, there is, there's a new normal that's in place. Workers can't go to work expecting to interact and engage each other the way they normally would have before coronavirus. You have to actually, before they come to work, 
you have to sort of take them through some sort of training or induction so that they understand how things have changed in the workplace. They must know, for example, that um, meetings will not happen in the, in the same manner that they used to happen. Um, perhaps you'll be encouraged to have a Zoom meeting even though you're all in the same building. Um, you have to ensure that you maintain social distancing at all times. So if you're talking about a factory floor, it means you have to reorganize the factory floor in such a way that workers are not literally working on top of each other. You have to adhere and maintain social distancing. You'd have to implement things like break time at, uh, and rotate it at different times. So if you, for example, are used to, you've got a canteen in your workplace and you're used to at 1 p.m., it's lunchtime, everybody goes out, sits down and eats. You can't do that in this uh, uh, coronavirus era. People will have to take lunch in, in, at different times. You have to limit the numbers so that social distancing can be adhered to and that you are ensuring that the virus is not being spread. If, for example, you find out that there's a worker who's caught the virus, um, there are protocols that speak about how you have to shut down the workplace, in a deep clean and sanitize the entire space, test and trace all of those who may have been infected. So our challenge is that whilst we have all of those guidelines that are in place, um, you, you will find that many companies simply do not adhere. Many companies don't even have a coronavirus or a COVID-19 uh, special committee, which is, you know, as di di dictated by, by, the, by, the, by the, the directors, to sort of manage this process and make sure that all of these new um, processes are being implemented on the shop floor. Um, what increases the challenge as well is the fact that you have you, you have to have the Department of Labor working together with the Department of Health. Now, our challenge as NUMSA is the fact that the Department of Labor does not have enough inspectors. So when companies fail to comply, as many of them are doing in, in many companies across the board, whether it's mining or engineering or manufacturing, we are seeing a lack of compliance across the board. We can complain to the Department of Labor, but it's very difficult for the Department of Labor to respond in time and to intervene because they frankly don't have the, um, the capacity. They've not actually gone and, and done what they were supposed to do and hired enough inspectors whose job it is to ensure that this work has been done. And this is something that we had a problem with the department with before coronavirus, and it, it has actually worsened the situation post-coronavirus because it means that if companies decide that they're not going to comply, then we have an uphill battle as unions to force compliance, and that has become one of our biggest challenges. Indeed, but I'm curious now, Pagamile, on a purely practical level, on a purely mechanic level, when it comes to talking about the ways in which, um, like you rightly said, certain companies haven't been complying to the, the compliance or haven't been complying to the regulations um, that have to be put in place in this new normal um, mid-COVID-19 pandemic. When it comes to those companies that, that you've earmarked as the ones that aren't complying, is it is it as simple as it being a case of ignorance or is there a degree of practicality that needs to be considered as far as the 
the realistic nature with which they can implement these um, these precautionary measures. And how are these precautionary measures enforced on sites? I'm thinking about things like social distancing and frequent use of hand sanitizers, which I can imagine gets tricky to continuously to continuously exercise if you aren't working in a work in a space or a work environment that is conducive to the the prolonged um, enforcing of social distancing social distancing regulations just for example so when it comes to these these companies that aren't complying is it just ignorance is it just purely them being ignorant or is there a space to consider the challenges that these companies themselves have to implement these precautionary measures whether it's a question of the size of the space they have to work in uh, versus or the size of the space they have to work in versus the size of their workforce and the, the the various challenges that can come into play with trying to rearrange um when people can take lunch or when people can um convene at the workplace i'm just curious as to how these uh, how these precautionary measures are enforced um, on a practical level on work sites. I think what has to change fundamentally is the attitude of employers in general in South Africa. Um, in, 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 we have already as unions always had issues with respect of how employees are not protected. And there's, there's a, a lot of failure on the side of employers to maintain a health and safety standards. So this was a problem for us before coronavirus, where we would struggle to get employers to adhere just to health and safety measures. And the problem at the heart of that problem, Gamelishe, is the fact that the attitude of many South African employers is they, they put profits ahead of human lives. It's just as simple as that. If you as a company have taken a conscious decision that we are going to prioritize the safety of our employees, these things are actually not that difficult. We have seen companies that have really gone above and beyond in trying to ensure and guarantee a safe workplace. I'll give you a classic example. South 32 is a company that um, I was speaking to one of our regional organizers a, a, a couple of minutes ago before doing this interview. And he was saying that this company has gone quite far in, in protecting workers. For example, because they want to prevent coronavirus from spreading and they want to ensure that the workplace is guaranteed safe, they provide transportation for workers to and from work. They don't want to take the chance that workers are going to take public transport and be exposed to the virus and then bring the virus to the workplace. South 32 has also um, made a proposal that it would like to offer workers the option of staying on the premises so that it can limit its interaction, so that workers can limit their interaction with the community in a way of trying to prevent the spread of the virus. So it really does, it is a, a, about an attitude of employers to this virus. If your attitude is profits are the only thing that matter to me, no matter what, then you will claim and make excuses that buying sanitizer is a problem and training workers is a problem. It's not really a problem. The fact is all of us, because of the impact of this pandemic, have been forced to adopt a change in behavior. No one is exempt from that. 
So there, frankly, is very little excuse for employers to claim, oh, no, it's not practical, uh, I can't do this, because your failure to do that is literally a life and a matter of life and death. People could die because of your refusal or, or, or because you are concerned about the inconvenience of setting up COVID-19 committees. So it really boils down to the attitude. Do you care about employees? Do you care about the community? Do you want us to be safe? And if that's your attitude as an employer, you won't have a problem with deep cleaning your workspace regularly. You won't have a problem with setting up your work environment in such a way that you limit the spread of the virus. You won't have a problem with engaging with unions to find a solution, even for the financial difficulties that you may experience with regards to payment of salaries because you're not making as much revenue. You know, we are not, um, I, I know as NUMSA, we come across like we're very military in the media like we're always fighting but more than anything we want to work with employers to find a solution because this is something that affects all of us it is in our interest to to ensure that we 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 create a workspace that is guaranteed safe and where we can do everything in our power to limit the spread of the infection but we can't do that on our own and if you are not going to join forces with us in trying to achieve this goal, then unfortunately, it will always be a problem for you. And you will always uh, not uh, uh, meet the basic standards as determined by the WHO and the Department of Labor and Health. So it's a question of how your love and your care for the people who work for you lines up against your business interests do you care more about the bottom line or do you care more about the people that form the lifeblood of your business i can certainly think of a few owners of multi-billion dollar companies based in the united states that i would like to personally ask that question based on everything you've just shared with us pagamile now as it pertains to mine workers and um them contracting the virus while on site or, or while in uh in the in the midst of working during this stage of the pandemic can you take us through the protocol that would be followed in that instance what would happen or should happen when one of your members is infected with the virus the ideal situation would be that um if somebody gets infected at the workplace very very quickly the employer should shut down the workplace inform employees that somebody has been infected and um, that person must be placed under quarantine uh, and whoever may have been in contact with that worker must also be placed under quarantine and testing must take place in the workplace for those who may have been in in contact with the person who who was in fact infected secondly what would need to happen is that what, um, you, some companies do do this, where they go beyond just the testing and the quarantine, but they also do tracing as well, to trace who else has been in touch with this worker so that they can make sure that on all avenues, uh, at all levels, everybody has been informed, everybody's either under quarantine or at home, isolated uh, and, 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 and testing. Secondly, um, the Department of Labor speaks very clearly about 
those who have been placed under quarantine must not be denied their income just because they've been placed under quarantine. So that's another area where some companies fail to comply, where companies will punish workers and not pay them their salaries because they have been placed under quarantine and are not able to work. Um, Department of Labor makes it very clear it is not the fault of the worker that they contracted this illness and therefore they should not suffer the consequences just because they got sick. It's the duty of the company to ensure that the worker is still able to sustain himself and his family during that period. The other things that must occur after you've, you've discovered this besides the, 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 the shutdown is deep cleaning the entire working space so that when you decide to resume operations again, you must make sure that the entire environment is sanitary and, and meets up with, with sanitation standards. So all of those things are outlined in, in, the, under, in terms of the Department of Labor's guidelines. Our job as unions to enforce and ensure that companies are adhering to these guidelines because, as I said to you, failure to do this can really have deadly consequences for all of us. Absolutely. And uh, finally, from me, before we let you go, Pagamile, as a, as a latch on to something you mentioned earlier in uh, this discussion around the aviation sector and being that you are involved with uh, SAA, can you take us through the developments on that side of the fence as far as the ways in which the travel bans that have been instituted have affected their bottom line and the ways in which SAA has to adapt to the current climate? There's been a huge impact on aviation as a sector globally because not only are there travel bans in place which have severely restricted tourism, and aviation as an industry depends very much on tourism as well as, pardon me, business travel, but also the manner in which the operations of the sector have to change. I mean, before there was no issue about people flying four, five, six, ten, twelve hours, being stuck in a plane, no problem. But now, because of the virus and the way that it spreads, we now know that you can't uh, jam a plane full of people for that amount of hours uh, because to do that means you are literally creating an environment for this uh, virus to spread. So airlines have to actually adjust. They have to implement social distancing. So... Um, you won't have a situation where people will be flying with a plane that's jam-packed full of people like it was in the past. Now you have to ensure that there is some space between passengers so that people are not uh, making each other sick. You might have to reduce it by to, to about 70% or, or thereabouts. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the, the global guideline is, but the bottom line is you do have to reduce your capacity to, to prevent infection. Now, the fact that you have to do that has a direct impact on the bottom line of many airline companies because it means that they won't make as much revenue as they would have because now they have to create space in planes, something that before they didn't have to do. This is why the aviation sector for the next couple of years, if it's going to survive, is actually going to require a lot of government support. You'll find that in other countries, um, their governments have taken decisions to ensure that the aviation sector doesn't collapse. So they've allocated very generous bailouts 
for the aviation sector or for their flagship carriers in order for them to continue flying during these times. We've seen this happening in America. We saw this in Germany with Lufthansa. Um, you know, many countries are actually taking that type of, of decision. Our challenge in South Africa is that as Noomsa and Saka, we are having to fight extremely hard with our government to, to do and to take this type of, of progressive step to cushion the aviation industry from the impact of coronavirus. They seem to want to continue to operate as if it's business as usual, as if these plans can just make money like they used to make money in, in a pre-COVID-19 era. That's just not possible. And many experts have already said that that's not going to be the case for, a, you know, at least until we have a vaccine, um, th that won't necessarily be the case. Governments are going to have to do something to try and support the sector. So this, for us at the moment, is one of our biggest challenges. Um, government, in our view, seems to be pushing uh, mass retrenchments at South African Airways without even coming up with a proper sort of social plan for workers who are going to be displaced as a result of this. You must understand that pre-coronavirus, we already had a crisis of extremely high levels of unemployment and inequality. Now this is going to be worsened because of all of the, um, the shut, because of the shutdown and the fact that aviation as a sector has been hugely impacted. Government has to come to the party. It has to ensure that workers and their families are not going to go hungry because people can't work. I mean, what are you supposed to do if you can't work? You know, and, and this is why we've been pushing very strongly that workers who are displaced at SAA must either find room in other state-owned entities or for the time that the airline is, is because it's obviously going to operate at very reduced levels for the probably the next 18 months or so, for the remainder of the workforce, that workforce must be placed on a training layoff scheme, which is supported by the CETA, and their salaries can be paid for by the CETA. They don't have to have their salaries paid in full. They can go and train and, and, and get skilled while they are waiting for the airline to ramp up, so to speak. And the airline will not have to pay the cost of their salaries. The CETA will, will, will pay at least 75% of their cost because they have the capacity to do that. Those are some of the kind of progressive things that a government has to do. A government has to take a decision to give a directive, for example, to banks and say, you will not demand rental payments or car payments or loan payments during this period until we figured out how to assist and cushion the masses against this. Spain has done that, for example, where for six months or more, banks are not allowed to demand rental or loan payments. Italy did the same at the height of, of the infections and at the height of the lockdown, and so did China. So. It, it, we cannot go to a situation which our government, unfortunately, wants to, where, where they want to depend on companies to solve this for them. They can't. Governments have to intervene through policy to ensure that workers and their families don't go hungry because of a lockdown. At the end of the day, the economy can recover. But if you lose a life, we to this day do not have the skill to resuscitate a person if they've, if they've passed on. So um, it's about a choice. Is it profit 
or is it people first? And if your government is choosing to act like a factory owner and push profits as ours is doing currently, then unfortunately, this job loss bloodbath that I was telling you about at the beginning of the conversation is only going to worsen and it's going to have very serious social impact for our society. You're going to see an increase, massive increase in social unrest and crime because our government is frankly not doing enough to cushion workers and their families for the very, very severe impact of the coronavirus pandemic. So in essence, in exchange for active citizenship, we in return demand an active government, unless of course they would prefer the immediate extreme alternative of all of us in this country swimming neck deep in the joblessness bloodbath. Thank you so much to our guest, Pagamile Shubimachola, national spokesperson of NUMSA, joining us here on The COVID Report to talk to us about the fate of the workers represented by NUMSA, as well as the measures that need to be put in place by employers to ensure their workers' safety during this advanced stage of the pandemic. And that brings us to the end of another informative edition of The COVID Report. I'd like to take one more moment to thank our guests, the national spokesperson of uh, NOMSA, Pagamile Shubimachola, as well as Senior Commissioner of the CCMA, Mr. Mtuduzi Kumalo, for weighing in on the ways in which the worker still needs to be protected and still needs to be put at the forefront of concern at this advanced stage of this pandemic. I would like to remind you that if you have missed out on this or any of the other plethora of conversations we have had on the COVID report, I urge you to visit our website www.vowfm.co.za and there you will gain access to all of our podcasts so you can binge listen to the COVID report. Thank you so much again for your continued support of the show and thank you for joining us on this edition of the show. Until the next time you hear from me, it is a goodbye. Until next time. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1 or streams by www.vafm.co.za.